what you're asking. My parents saw them first. They were overwatching the children during a school vacation. They said they had seen them sleeping on a crumpled up cardboard box beside our fence, under our deck. They took the kids on a walk to pick up kitten chow, but when they had returned back from the center, and when I had returned home from work, the kittens were gone. There were two white ones and two ginger ones, they explained. My wife and I kept a close watch around the property that day, that evening, the rest of the week, but we never saw them, never saw any evidence of them. My parents' story didn't seem implausible on its face. A stray cat had been wandering through our yard all spring, making eyes at our cats, trying to sneak in the back door to steal their food. But as July rolled forward and onwards, slapping us with the alternating hot and brutal, then wet and frigid weeks, we saw the stray. We had jokingly named her Theo before her femaleness became known. But we never saw any of the phantom kittens. Surely they would never be that far from their mother. Surely they would have emerged to steal our cat's food if they existed at all. We began assuming my parents had invented them. Theo was barely a kitten herself, all small and slender, slinking through the sliver between the fence post and our foundation as if two-dimensional. Certainly not old enough to be a parent, we thought. It would be August before I saw them with my own eyes. They crawled, bellies and chin against the ground, under our fence gate, each pausing to shake the dirt off their fur once inside the yard. Too white, too ginger, just as my parents had said. They quickly took residence in the shady grove behind our shed. At twilight, we would sit at the outskirts and watch them bat at the low leaves just on the edge of remaining daylight. They were everything you wanted kittens to be. Soft, small, playful, and comically outsized in their own bodies. They fell and tumbled and fought with each other, stage wrestling, making ludicrous leaps in the air and pouncing upon their brothers and sisters as if on wires. Just stunts. Just fun. And they were kittens in all the ways you didn't want them to be. They were now permanent in our yard, and they would eventually become cats. We already had three cats of our own. We had gotten all three as kittens. We knew what happened. Pirate, our first, had been brought home by accident. We drove out one Saturday to look at a bicycle we had seen for sale on the side of the road and found the kittens instead. My wife and I had only been dating for a year and living together for a few months, but bringing a kitten home seemed something we were ready for. A year later, ostensibly as company for our first, we got our second, Tinker, a skittish female who once hid herself away in a crawl space under the floorboards of our house for days before I was able to coax her out. Beto was the third. A short white hair, he was the brother of a cat my friend was adopting. And against all best advice, I brought him home. Within an hour, we realized three was too many. He was loud and smelly and dumber than any animal I'd ever owned. The other cats hated him in his aggressively oafish ways. And while Pirate had been fixed once he reached maturity, and Tinker spayed at about six months when I caught her mewing softly and rubbing her private parts against my black dress shoes, I had paid in advance for Beto's neutering when I picked him up. 
The shelter, however, closed up before he reached the right age, and I wasn't going to pay twice to neuter a cat, especially one as annoying and doltish as Beto. Besides, they were all indoor cats, at least for the first ten years we'd had them, and they were all old now. Beto in particular hadn't aged well. His left eye began clouding up until it was no longer matched his right. We gave him a sobriquet, Thin White Duke, after David Bowie. He moved slower and slept more than in his youth. There wasn't any trouble, we believed, that he could get into. With two white kittens in our yard, it was difficult to still believe that. My wife was particularly stern with him, chastising him for getting up to monkey business with a stray. I blamed myself. I'd lazily refused to follow through with getting him fixed. There must have been another shelter affiliated with the one I'd found him at that would have performed the neutering, if I'd only bothered to look. But the guilt I felt ran deeper than that somehow. When I was 11 years old, my father asked my mother to bring me over to his house alone, without my sisters. She had taken us to the mall that morning, and I had a pit of dread in my gut all day, absent-mindedly ambling past orange Juliuses and footlockers. I'd had friends whose dads had wanted to have talks with them alone recently. There was something in the air that season, sick and sweet. We were becoming men, or people expected we would be. There were things they thought we should know. At the mall, I was able to finagle my mother into buying me a Superman comic, and I hugged it in its brown paper bag the whole ride to my father's house. I hopped out of my mother's Ford Aerostar onto my father's driveway, and she was gone before I reached the door. Once inside, there was no preamble, no opening act. My father simply sat me down on the edge of his bed. It felt like someone had died. Perhaps they had. For all my sixth grade bravado, I knew shockingly little about sex. I thought I knew that it involved kissing and touching nipples, but I actually had no idea that my penis could do what my father told me it would do. And I certainly never thought I would put it where he told me I would one day want to put it. I kept thinking about that Superman comic, that I just had to sit and endure this for a little longer, that when it was over I could read about investigative journalism and Kryptonian battle armor. Recent issues had focused on Superman's Fortress of Solitude up in the Arctic Circle, a place he could go and escape, get away from the madness of Metropolis, get away from anyone telling him about erections and vaginas and pregnancy and disease. But my gut was on fire. I couldn't wait for my father to finish his disquisition. I bolted to the bathroom, nervous and peaked. I sat there flushed and embarrassed, shaken, violated. Sex was a joke we boys made amongst ourselves. It had no weight, no solidity. It floated like water vapor and dissipated into our ignorance. Now it had form and shape and a heavy, cruel density. My father never finished his talk. When I came back, we moved on to other topics. We watched TV, we ate some dinner, we sat down and read the Superman comic together. I was 11 and thought myself a grown-up in my way, but I still loved laying beside my father and reading comics. The issue opened with the staff of the Daily Planet availing themselves of the new gym in their building. Jimmy Olsen, cub reporter and Superman's sidekick, jokes around with Clark Kent and Lois Lane, but is preoccupied with the gossip columnist, the much older and more experienced Cat Grant. As the staff begins their aerobics routine, Jimmy's thought balloons reveal his nervousness, his anxiety, 
to be in such a form-fitting outfit in front of Kat, be performing athletically, physically in front of her. She's an older, sexier woman with playful teasing has tormented him for months. Could she ever go for someone so young, he wonders. He sweats and strains in his effort to keep up with the instructor, to not appear weak or emasculated in front of her. It builds to a crescendo of male fragility when he literally explodes. His arms and legs begin to elongate and stretch, become like broke rubber bands, spilling out and flailing wildly about the room. The synchronicity was chilling. As Clark cradled Jimmy's Olsen's limp, flaccid body, his loose, linguine limbs, the metaphor was all too clear. The creators were making an homage to Jimmy Olsen's Silver Age alter ego, Elastic Lad, and explained away his condition as an alien virus Superman had inadvertently brought back from space. But even those explanations had sinister vibrations. They called the story, I Sing the Body Elastic, as a nod to Ray Bradbury. But none of this seemed like music like something you would sing about. It was everywhere after that. My friend started to show the signs, like the virus had spread to all of us in turn. One night at a sleepover, after the parents had gone to sleep, one of us slipped in a VHS copy of Basic Instinct. The film opens with a naked woman writhing atop a man, her body an undulating serpentine S. The noises they made were guttural, animal, She ties the man's hands to the bedpost with a silk, then at the moment of climax, stabs him repeatedly in the neck with an ice pick. The police arrive at the crime scene in the next scene, but we never hear what they said. We fast-forwarded through that scene and the next. We held the button down and watched through the magnetic static that swizzled across the screen until we saw bare breasts or an ass until we saw it. We weren't old enough for desire, but we desired desire. We wanted to try it on like our father's jackets, sleeves dangling far past our fingers. We wanted to know everything, and we feared learning anything. We giggled and blushed and dissembled in sex ed. For my part, I blacked out in front of my entire biology class as I attempted to stumble out of the room, as Mrs. Sternfeld explained about shedded uterine wall linings, the blood between their legs. Who could imagine such a thing? What kind of designer would make the act of creation so otherworldly, so violent and sticky and humid, so full of sweat, so full of blood? I was taken away by the school nurse in a wheelchair, ashen and sunken-eyed, triaged like an unlucky and conscientious objector who tread too closely to a landmine. I will not be recounting the details of my sex life. I will suffice it to say I had much less sex than people assume I had, given how much time I spent in close company of girls with whom I was madly in love. The late nights in girls' rooms, in girls' cars and apartments, were usually not as salacious as they likely appeared. I also did stupid and petty things driven by lust. I spent a year in purposeful celibacy. I spent nights with girls who meant nothing to me beneath, besides the warmth of their bodies. Throughout it all, through the times I was disgusted by sex and driven by sex, I was always ultimately horrified by it. In the back of my mind, it was always the contorted, distended limbs of Jimmy Olsen, the splurting blood of the ice pick in the neck. We fuck to extend our lives, like sending out spores, like swimming upstream to exhaust our final life energy upon the eggs buried there. Sex made you alive, and being alive made you dead. I blacked out in Mrs. Sternfeld's classroom and awoke 18 years later in an obstetrician's office holding my wife's hand. 
we were looking at a black and white photo. The doctor told us it was a baby, but someone else might have seen a topographical map of the lunar surface. But the picture wasn't enough. They wanted blood. Fortunately, it was not mine. I was the squeamish one. My wife bravely bared her forearms, offered vein after vein. It was a season of cotton balls and medical tape. I thought about that picture a lot over the following days. How alien it looked. How almost ichthological. A nightmare fish swimming in the deepest, blackest waters, below where the sun's light could reach. It was early yet, they explained. It didn't look like anything yet, they explained. So I dreamt of it swimming. Ultimately, there was something in the blood. Or something missing from the blood. They wanted more. And my wife, she gave, and she gave, and she would sit staring straight ahead on the rides home. Cotton balls and medical tape. And in the end, it was all just blood. We had made something alive, and just as quickly, as suddenly, without warning or noise, it was no longer alive. It was just blood. The sun's light would never reach the bottom. You can't imagine anything stopping light, can you? But there's darkness still. We have two children now. You don't need the dirty details. The sun shines on their beautiful faces every day. But with every late morning sleeping in, every screeching break when they are out of view, I am reminded of the horror. There are two of them, and it's more than I can handle most days. But I say, at least I have a hand for each. But I ache for that third, and the phantom limb to hold his or her hand. Sex makes things alive, and being alive eventually makes you dead. Sometimes the, respons the responsibility shakes me awake at night. I just want to read Superman comics. We've done a better job of keeping Beto indoors, away from Theo and her kittens. He's old and decrepit and likely blind in that one eye, and you'd think that would keep him from getting into trouble. But maybe it's all the more reason. The sense that after almost a decade of eating and pooping and sleeping and smelling his brother's and sister's hindquarters, maybe this is his last opportunity to attain a level of immortality. Whatever. The old shit is staying indoors. Someone has to be responsible. My wife and I are at odds about what to do with the strays. She puts food out for them each night. I ignore them all day in the hopes they'll just wander away. Our neighbor complains about their defecating in his garden. I promise him we're trying to capture and surrender them. The local vets say to wait until the kittens are weaned. So you just hope they wander off. Theo, the mother, her eyes are daggers for me. I swat her off our porch steps. I clean her shit off our shoes. I bring in the empty bowls my wife lays out for her, and I don't refill them. There'll be no detente between us, the mother cat and I. I sometimes see her alone, her head raised high, crying out for something. It is not her cry for food. It is not her hiss when I pass. It is something huge and swirling beyond our senses. I've only seen three kittens the last few days, my wife tells me. One of the ginger ones is gone. How sad. The air is getting colder now at night. The sun's sinking earlier. My son and I play in the yard together until it is dark. Our play is growing shorter. I bring him up the back steps and the mother cat watches me. She does not trust me, 
knows perhaps that soon I will try and capture her and surrender her. I will have to. Someone needs to be responsible. She does not, cannot know the absence we share, the almost animal grief that the two of us nurse and nurture that refuses yet to wean. <laughs>